The internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore it. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shagoths, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover or build a god when we reach the cyber ocean floor. People claim to remember past lives, I claim to remember a different, a very different present life. The psychotic drones, where the mystic swims, they're drowning. Hello and welcome back to the Astro Flight Simulation Podcast, where we navigate the digital world through art and culture. And today I'm joined by another very special guest, Mr. Conan Esquire, as he is known on Twitter. Uh, I've been trying to get this gentleman to sit down with me for a couple hours for probably eight or nine months, and it's finally come to fruition. He's one of the main people I wanted to talk to, and uh, one of the main reasons I even started a podcast, as I've said about a couple other guests uh, because some of the stuff these guys are putting out, some of the content these guys are creating is on a level that is uh, higher than anything else I've found anywhere else in culture, uh, in the media, on, in journals, on the internet and television. So Conan, why don't you give my guests uh, a little bit of background, why you took that name, what you're doing on Twitter, and uh, why we're here to talk today. Sure. And thanks for having me on, Astral. I really appreciate it. Like you said, you're one of my um, favorite content creators out there on the World Wide Web, and uh, it's a real pleasure to be on with you. Uh, I, I took the name Conan Esquire because I'm deeply inspired by the works of Robert E. Howard, who wrote the original Conan series, as well as a lot of the other pulp fiction authors that came out of that era. And uh, I use that to kind of post about a lot of the things that interest me and um, that end up being countercultural for various reasons. I also use it to inspire my writing. I'm a fiction author and uh, working in kind of a, I, what I hope is a sort of an updated pulp revival sphere. Um, and uh, the Esquire is because I'm a lawyer, but I don't like to talk about that if I can avoid it. Yes. Well, one of my favorite things to do to my guests is uh, as soon as we're on the air, put them on the spot and uh, insist that they come back for a second interview after this one, because I'm having you on today to discuss a very important topic dear to my heart. Uh, but you have written your own book and it's actually the beginning of a, a book series. And one of my one of my uh, reasons for existing here is to promote self-published authors, because that's where all the real action is in publishing today. And I firmly believe that. Um, not to mention your, your name, uh, Conan, uh, we, I'm going to have you back to talk about your books, uh, Robert E. Howard and Conan, but I, I needed to have you on first to, we really had to get this out of the way, our discussion of comparing and contrasting, um, Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings. I think for the most part, these things are lumped together and everybody kind of takes them all as just a, a fantasy genre, um, you know, entertainment. Whereas, of course, I'm sure you're aware that the Lord of the Rings diehards uh, totally disavow Game of Thrones and Song of Ice and Fire. And some of them even disavow the, the Lord of the Rings films. But I'd really like to spend the bulk of our discussion on the Lord of the Rings books and movies, as well as the Song of Ice and Fire series and uh, the HBO television. So 
show. So if I could get you to agree to come back next time, we're going to talk about your book, Conan and Robert E. Howard. Today, I wanted to, I really wanted to tie you down for this because of a couple threads you did on Twitter that got immense amount of, uh, of play. Thousands of likes and retweets and quote tweets. You were attacked. You were endorsed. Uh, you were people expanded upon your ideas. Um, you inspired my most successful post ever on Twitter, which was a, a post about, uh, I guess, I guess I'd say at the heart of it is the theme of Lord of the Rings. Uh, it was a post really though about Frodo. I was trying to trying to rescue Frodo's reputation because some folks uh, were bad mouthing him. I'll get to that later though. Um, we got a lot to talk about. So if you would. Quickly give us the name of the book you have published, and then we'll set that aside for next time. And then tell us about this thread you did on George R.R. R. Martin. What were you trying to say about his series? It seemed like a, a, a pretty harsh criticism of him. Um, and uh, what were some of the things people came back at you for that, that disagreed with you? Sure. Um, first off, I'm happy to come back as many times as you'll have me back. Uh, I always love talking to you in the spaces that we do. Second, uh, the book that I wrote is called The Turquoise Serpent. It's available on Amazon for $7. Um, and then to the meat of your question, the Game of Thrones thread, that was, that was a pretty wild couple days. Um, the, so you're exactly right. There is a great deal of contention between sort of like Game of Thrones aficionados or Song of Ice and Fire aficionados and, uh, and Lord of the Rings aficionados. And we can talk about the, the particular breakdown of that pseudo conflict if we want, but the meat of the thread that I posted was really pretty limited in scope. I, I don't actually have a huge problem with Game of Thrones, like a comprehensive problem with Game of Thrones. I have one very specific targeted problem with Game of Thrones that I think requires some nuance to understand and uh, does nothing but present like an argument for how we should consider the success of the Game of Thrones project. And by the Game of Thrones project, I mean both the book series and the television show because the one grows out of the other, obviously. So the, the meat of the thread and the, the real central core of the argument is just, well, it's related to the theme thing that you mentioned. And it is to say that Game of Thrones ultimately fails, like the project ultimately fails. George Martin can't finish the series um, because he decided to write an epic fantasy series with a theme that is directly opposed to the structure of an epic fantasy series. So, and we can get into what I mean by that, but what I really mean by that is he, he writes this series to be a sort of, I don't know, quasi nihilistic inversion of the sort of, heroic moral themes that come out of uh, the structure of a traditional epic fantasy story. And that structure of the traditional epic fantasy story is designed and is built to produce certain types of themes. And by theme, I mean moral arguments that the book is making. I go back to Horace on this point, who wrote the Ars Poetica, you know, thousands of years ago in ancient Rome. Don't quote me on the date. But uh, Horace said in that work that the point of art is to delight and instruct. 
And so that didactic element, the instruction is maybe, uh, maybe, you know, maybe his ordering is right. Maybe it's of slightly secondary importance to, you know, the requirement that a work of art delights you, but it is still important. And so a good work of art, a good novel or even painting or film or whatever does carry some thematic moral point to it. And the moral point that Martin is trying to make with the Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones project, whatever it is, is diametrically opposed to the very structure of the work that he's creating. And so for that reason, he can't actually bring the work to a close because there's this inherent conflict at the core of the work. And so that was really kind of the central point that I was trying to make with the thread. And because it's a Twitter thread, you know, I did not, it's not a comprehensive, like, literary analysis that you'd publish in a journal somewhere or anything. So I didn't, I didn't put crazy hours into developing the argument and trying to, you know, cite to the books to explain exactly what Martin was trying to say with the books and so forth. So there were a lot of angles and ways that people could either attack my arguments for lack of evidence or um, support my arguments with helpful additions of their own. So I think that's part of why I don't know. Obviously, it's topical to some extent, but that's that's kind of why the thread got such good traction. It was a lot of fun. Well, it's an excellent thread, and you you absolutely have to be provocative on Twitter to to cause a stir. And um, at the same time, everyone everyone should know that you can't fit everything into a Twitter thread. So people attack you on that that front. Um, it's kind of a it's kind of a, a aimless, a empty, baseless attack. But right. um, did you get attacked on the, the grounds that people were saying that uh, Game of Thrones was, in fact, not an ultimate failure? Because I think it's absolutely uncontroversial to say that that the series is a failure for, uh, for, for two reasons that we'll get into. But I wanted to know, was there pushback on that, that particular point? Yeah, there was. I would divide the criticism that I received into two camps. And the first camp, which mostly came in before that thread hit like 500 likes, um, was thoughtful criticism that, oh, you know, I had, I was maybe missing some points that would help me better clarify what I thought Martin's moral argument, his theme, his overarching theme for his project was. Uh, and then after that, it got like retweeted by to all these like Game of Thrones accounts and people who really formed their identity around um, the Game of Thrones project and had these kind of weird parasocial relationships with it. And those people were loudly telling me that the, uh, the project wasn't a failure. He was still going to write the following books. Like he's going to pull it off. Oh, actually uh, you misinterpreted all this. And it's like, that makes me a little bit sad to hear. Actually, I know. It's, it's like, so it's pure copium. Well, because it, it's it's objectively a failure because he he not only didn't f read uh, finish writing the books but the series did two things wrong first of all it gave us all a spoiler by giving us the end first and second it uh, they really fucked up the last season which uh, deserves its own uh, you know fifteen minutes of discussion on how and why they fucked it up but I think if his ending was supposed to be that uh, John relinquishes the crown. Uh, Brandon, uh, was it who who became the king at the end? Wasn't it? Brandon? I think it was Bran. Uh, Bran Stark. I almost said Bran, the mercenary. 
there's, Brandon. There's, there's Bron, there's Brandon, and there's Bran. I know. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so. exactly. Um, Bran becomes the king, and Danny uh, kind of goes schizo Targaryen and burns the whole city. I think all those elements are fine. They could have been handled quite well. Um, not to mention you had the Tyrion who seemed to have a love interest in Danny that and, and seemed to be maybe jealous of John and they they flubbed all of it. This this is all this was all it's well known that George gave all this to the writers as this is what the ending is going to be. And they completely mishandled it. And they also um, gave a spoiler to, to the end of the books. Now there is precedence for this. It's not like I, I hate to say this, but it's not like Martin is totally innocent here because the, the manga series for Akira finished after the film ended and the the uh, the ender, ending of the film is not a spoiler for the ending of the manga. So there is absolutely precedence for, for what happened with Game of Thrones in, in the Akira manga and the, and the anime. So it's proof that you can do this effectively. It's just that the people involved, uh, for whatever reason, flubbed it. But uh, there's a much more important question uh, that, that maybe we can get back to the, the failure that I'm talking about. Uh, actually, we should because it's important. But the other thing here is the, the failure of theme. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but all I'm hearing from you makes me think is that uh, it, 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 cannot be, it cannot be elevated to the level of mythology or literature like Lord of the Rings can. Lord of the Rings is not pulp by any stretch of the imagination, and it's uh, it's uh, ripe with uh, interpretation and analysis, as well as like moral moral advice for living your life uh, in the in the in the uh, crisis that we face in modernity, which any good myth really has to have that element that that sort of guidework guidebook for um, how to live your life the right way or how to to confront the challenges of life and overcome them and i i certainly agree with you that game of thrones lacks that but i would say all that really does is knock it down into into a pulp genre piece which is fine i don't know if anybody's arguing with that it 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 prevents it from being elevated to the level of myth and kind of keeps it in the in the pulp genre piece. Because yeah. I've, I've read all the Dungeons and Dragons novels and love them, but uh, it, you know it's just throwaway pulp fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree, and I think that. I mean, I want to be clear that I don't think that George Martin is like the worst writer in the world or anything. I don't think that this this is a big gap between the skill of the writer and the reception of the piece. I think he's a good writer. He's, like you said, there's, he's throwing around a lot of cool concepts and he has a lot of skill in developing those concepts as a writer. And he has a great instinct as to what a story needs to be successful as a story. I think he just has an, a thematic or almost ideological project that he's trying to accomplish. Like what he's doing here is, is incredibly ambitious and it was incredibly ambitious from the start. And it's that ambition and the, the kind of mm, writing in conversation with the legacy of J.R.R. Tolkien in the fantasy sphere, for lack of a better term, that causes them to be compared. And he, he's 
largely in some ways lived up to that ambition, right? Um, but I think there's this critical failure that keeps him from ever actually accomplishing the ambition. So that's, it, it's a nuanced, it's a nuanced, it's a nuanced work. It has to be, it can't really be collapsed into, um, into either like canonical art, the way that I think Tolkien will eventually be collapsed into, into kind of like the Western canon. And it can't be collapsed into throwaway pulp in the way that the Dungeons and Dragons novels can. So I think it kind of like just exists in this forever unfinished uh, work of great ambition that, that um, for interesting reasons couldn't be pulled off. Well, um, do you, would you say that there is an attempt at a theme that he uh, fails at, at actualizing, or do you think he's just kind of uh, lacking theme? You know, it, it gets complicated. I do think, I think there is an attempt at a theme, but I think that because of the structure that he chose to tell his story, I think the extremity of the theme that he wants to convey, um, whatever we want to call it like whether it's whether it's nihilism i don't quite think it's nihilism whether it's like some some flavor or arguments for moral relativity uh or uh, you know stochastic realism or whatever i think the, that he envisioned it to such an extreme that it just cannot be squared with the structure of the work so i think there yeah you're right about that you know what i mean and i can yeah. give an example too because there's like other authors have had this idea and approached it in different ways. Like be even before Game of Thrones or Song of Ice and Fire, there was Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn by Tad Williams. And that that series um, partially inspired Song of Ice and Fire. And, and uh, Martin has talked about that. And, and it's a very similar concept in that it takes the heroic structure of the epic adventure of Lord of the Rings and brings it into maybe a little bit more concrete psychological reality and presents this um, coming of age story, this rise to adulthood story and, and broader powers story in a more nuanced psychological light where, you know, our young protagonists are learning that the simplistic notions of of moral absolutism or idealism that they that they had from their childhood aren't necessarily real and it needs to be integrated with the nature of evil that exists in the world i'm sorry and, are, you, are you still you're talking about game of thrones now not memory, so Sorrow, thorn. no i am talking about memory sorrow thorn that's interesting it's interesting. it's a very very conceptual work and but because what you the, say um i i I'm loath to interrupt my guests, but what you're saying oh, can be, sounds like it to me, like it could be transposed right onto Game of Thrones. Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to be throwing out actionable uh, accusations, but if I, if I'm uh, Tad Williams' lawyer, I might try to get a settlement out of George Martin for how much he cribbed from memory sorrow Thorne. Dude, that's exactly when I said your, your thread was purposely provocative that the part about memory sorrow Thorne is what I'm talking about because you mm -hmm. basically accuse him of plagiarizing it. And it sounds like you're doubling down on that, which is fine. Listen, read, read memory sorrow Thorne and draw your conclusions because I have read it. You know, I have read it. Okay. So, well, then I will go into the details, but like some of this, it's in the specifics always like, 
rolling my eyes, like the idea of the long winter and the uh, white walkers coming out of the north and the comet pretending doom in the sky and the red priest and the princess in disguise named, I think in Memory Star of the Thorn, her name is Maria. And in A Song of Ice and Fire, her name is Aria. And it's just the, you know, maybe it's an homage, maybe it's respectful, but uh, you read it and you're like, oh, this is, and I don't, I don't even mind it because me, what he's doing, what Martin is doing is in conversation with both these works, right? Like Lord of the Rings offers you um, this kind of full-throated defense or argument for these life-affirming themes. Um, Tad Williams in Memory Sorrow Thorn tempers that and shows you a more kind of middle of the road approach. Yes, you know, evil exists according to a more realistic nature in the world of Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn, but here's how the, um, the moral idealism of our young protagonists can be integrated into that with experience and still come to a meaningful conclusion. And then, you know, third in the line, George Martin says, I'm going to take this, this, um, this psychological realism and exploration of the nature of evil and good in the world even further to its logical extreme and that's where the structure of the story breaks well um, we're gonna give spoilers away here because we can't really talk about this stuff without the end because the end is usually what uh kind of brings the theme to the forefront and and wraps it up in a neat little package as they say so um with lord of the rings in order to understand the moral lesson, I hate to use that term, but in order to understand the moral lesson, uh, you really we'll just have say to theme. Yeah, we'll just say theme. You you have to follow uh, Frodo and Sam to the end and see what happens to them. And the same is true for the protagonist in Memory Sorrow Thorn. I think his name was Simon, and uh, in Game of Thrones with John. But uh, of, of the three works, the Memory Sorrow Thorn has the strangest ending because if you remember, they revive an old knight and the evil manifests itself in the world. And at the last second, when there's going to be the final apocalyptic showdown, uh, someone grants forgiveness upon the evil entity um, and he kind of goes away. He defeats him that way, which is like a, was a bit anticlimactic. I'd like to hear how you felt about that ending. But I do feel that it it sort of um, did try to drive home the theme that you are getting at, that like Simon has to go through the fire to become a man. And then when he reaches manhood, uh, he sort of makes his peace with the past and he makes his peace with the hell he's gone through. Um, and I, I don't know exactly the, the fact that the 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 knight is like a revived knight from the past. Maybe it's got something to do with ancestors or, or tradition. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, do you kind of agree with my estimation of the ending? Am I? No, I, I definitely agree. I think it was anticlimactic, and I think part of the reason for that was that those books were like like the Song of Ice and Fire books. They were very long um, and kind of self indulgent, and in some ways, not as bad as Song of Ice and Fire. In my mainly, opinion, mainly the third one was so yeah. self indulgent. You know, a, a piece of trivia. I think that third book is technically. And it, I don't know, this may have changed, but it used to be the longest single fantasy novel ever published. And so they broke it up into two books, like part one and part two, but technically. Um, but yeah, it was it was long. 
And so that the ending felt a little abrupt after all of that, for sure. Um, so then with Jon Snow, he, I, I said he relinquishes the crown, but he doesn't even have a crown to relinquish. He sort of turns it down and goes off his own separate way because he's like this humble, this humble guy. But the interesting thing is too, like one of the one of the overlaps there is that John is a low, lowly bastard who turns out to have uh, uh, royal origins and actually has a stake to the cl a claim to the throne as well as Simon. It's it's very much the King Arthur story, right? That that the young man mm -hmm. is a scullion uh, in the in the in the palace, but uh, there's one, especially in Memory Sorrow Thorn. There's even like a wizard character who's like a Merlin. Mm -hmm. knows his secret and he protects him and helps him escape from people who want to kill him a lot of this stuff is very biblical and i would say by the time we get to game of thrones we are off definitely off the biblical themes so now i don't think you know i don't want to get too uh abstract here but it's it's good that you trace the genealogy through those through those three series i think probably i don't know if there's can you think of another fantasy series that if you wanted to do a genealogy of, of fantasy and trace kind of the development of the genre and discuss kind of how it evolves over the years and how we got to where we are now would you put anything else in the canon with those three i mean i think those are probably the three most important it really depends on what what line of uh, i guess concept exploration you're talking about so like, where do you want to end up? If you want to talk about these kind of like major, major uh, epic adventure stories that are exploring um, themes of kind of like high morality, then yeah, I would agree. I think those are the three really critical ones to look at. And there was even one published or a couple published in the wake of George Martin um, that that borrow a lot of his ideas and, and kind of either try to pull them back a little bit or try to refine them a little bit. And um, so I would add to the genealogy post-Martin. Um, shoot, I can't remember the name of the actual series, but it's Joe Abercrombie's series that starts with um, Before They Are Hanged, I think, uh, and ends with Last Argument of Kings. I can't remember, the, I can't remember the name of the series. But then there's also um, a, Scott, a Scott Backer series called like the prince of nothing um that is also kind of in this vein but as far as like the really leading you know points of development no i think the the lord of the rings saron thorn and song of ice and fire axis is is probably paramount for this agreed agreed now with conan i would say that conan and like robert e howard and lovecraft are like the prehistory of the genre fiction that grew up after them horror uh fantasy and science fiction they're mm -hmm. they're sort of like the titans of the genre so i they do deserve to be in the genealogy but i think they need to be discussed uh, sort of separately um from from these tolkien is certainly i mean tolkien is the one who inspired everybody everything that's come after tolkien is 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 aping tolkien tolkien for sure um wheel of wheel of time as well might deserve a place in here but the funny thing about that one is that was also maybe a failed project at least in the mechanical way that i got at in the beginning he um, you know rest in peace died before he finished it and wasn't it brandon sanderson who came along and finished 
Yeah, it was. And I, I can't speak to, um, I can't speak accurately or with any degree of like expertise to wheel of time, because I read, I read the books that he published when I was like really young and uh, I never went back and finished the Sanderson ones. I don't know. I, I like Sanderson. Okay. I just, the energy was not there for me to read. Like the wheel of time books are already long and bloated as it yeah. was. And then Sanderson is just the same kind of writer, you know, like everything he publishes is so long and uh, I just ran out of time. I have to admit, I only made it about 100 pages into the first one of those and the 100 pages into the first one by Steven Erickson. What is that series called? And it starts with the book, The Garden. Ah, uh, yeah. The Malazan Book of the Fallen. Yes. And and I'm being told by some mutual friends of ours um, that uh, I absolutely need to go back and finish both of those series. So maybe I will someday. But it it, it is worth noting, though, that I don't I think in any objective sense, if you're going to talk about the the genre of fantasy, um, Wheel of Time hasn't had really the cultural impact that Lord of the Rings and Game of the Thrones have had. Uh, Memory Sorrow Thorn is slightly more obscure, but uh, it is it is a cornerstone in the genre because it sort of was I feel like it was the transition from from Tolkien to Martin and everything that comes after Martin. Agreed. So if I can just uh, indulge myself just for a second, I'm not going to get too abstract with this, but I will in other episodes of this show develop uh, what I'm going to lay out briefly here for uh, Lord of the Rings and 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 um, Game of Thrones. Now this this concept can be transposed onto any genre, but basically what you have is um, Lord of the Rings comes, you have to, you have to contextualize these works within the cultural milieu that they arise out of, right? So Lord of the Rings comes at a time when like the, the, uh, the old aristocratic feudal world uh, of Europe was in its death throes. Um, it had obviously been going away ever since probably the time of Don Quixote, if we're going to use a, a literary genealogy here. Because um, that book, that book is the same thing. It's about uh, the the uh, diminishment of the aristocratic Europe and the the uh, the ascendancy of merchant uh, sort of uh, Europe. And the post enlightenment, excuse me, the enlightenment sort of accelerated all of this stuff. And by the time you get to Lord of the Rings, you have uh, sort of the Ragnarok of the old world, the old Europe, uh, it, finally coming to some crashing defeat through uh, both world wars and mechanization. So Tolkien has a very nostalgic element to him. Uh, he certainly clearly venerates um, the mythological world. And I think that may be represented by the elves and the elves uh, leaving in the beginning of the book. It's, it's quite interesting. It's I think one of the most important things in the whole series that the elves going away is sort of an analogy of the old world kind of receding from the earth. And we're left over with uh, men who are, you know, they have they have redeemable qualities. They are capable of transcending uh, the evil in the world. But as we see with Boromir and others, um, uh, Theoden, and other men in the series as well, they are uh, Sauron. They are very susceptible to the temptation of the ring. Um, and the the juxtaposition of the orcs to the men is, I think, in a way, Tolkien's, and it's kind of 
even though he supposedly is on record denying this, it's actually a little bit heavy handed, if you ask me, the especially in the film, the scene of the orcs uh, in the subterranean lair kind of uh, feeding the trees into their furnaces to build all their weapons is clearly a, 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 a comment on industrialization. So that book is inextricably bound to the, uh, the transition that was taking place. We could say it was from modernism to postmodernism. Um, but the nostalgic elements, as well as some of the other elements, like the Christian uh, elements in it, sort of give it this mythological feel to it. And um, he's certainly venerating uh, the things that came before. But he's also giving us uh, a, a sort of a roadmap on how to deal with the evil that is coming into the world with technology. Um, and if that sounds like a, a little bit too extreme of a thing to say about Tolkien, you should read his letters, especially the ones to his son, Christopher. There's an excellent YouTube documentary about Tolkien where Christopher talks about this, and he explicitly states that the ring is uh, a metaphor that his father intended uh, for technology and the temptation of technology. So I think that um, that's one of the things that elevates Lord of the Rings to the level of mythology. Whereas the milieu that Game of Thrones comes out of is it's quite different. It's quite different. It's after the fabled end of history in which, uh, which uh, certain spheres say prove that uh, the post-enlightenment uh, uh, capitalist democratic liberal order is the victor over both the, uh, the old feudal way through uh, the, the old feudal backward way through World War One and Two, and then the defeat of communism at the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, so Fukuyama warns us, though, that we may kind of lose the the light uh, of of the driving force within us that that drives us to um, perpetuate civilization and to 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 give us our reason for living, our reason for being, um, and we may sort of devolve into the last men, the Nietzschean last men. And I worry that, and I, I said I wasn't going to get too abstract. I fear I, I failed at that. But I worry that Game of Thrones, you're calling it nihilistic. And I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, I think the nihilism that Nietzsche warned about has kind of crept in and is sort of now the pervading attitude uh, for the West. And I don't think that George R. Martin is a nihilist at all. And I don't think he was trying to make a, a nihilistic work at all. Um, but I think that in the era that it came out of, the, the, there is like not as much to be nostalgic about. It's almost like a celebration of degeneracy. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I personally, you know, I'm not a, a prude or like a, like a puritanical Christian. So I don't have super strong words for, for the the nudity and the sexuality as well as like the backstabbing. And I'm not just going to say the violence, but like the, the nihilistic violence uh, in which, you know, you held up this figure, uh, Ned Stark, who is probably the purest, most honorable man in the whole series. And he gets his head chopped off before the first book is over. Now, what is the statement Martin is trying to make there? He, you could argue that he's trying to say that those things are just going to get you killed uh, in the world. And that you need to practice, you know, a little bit more of a nihilistic, real politic type of thing. Whereas you see people like uh, Peter, uh, the pimp, who uh, is going after um, Sansa. He survives through the whole thing. Um, so you could bring that up as an argument. But I worry that, uh, that yeah, that, that this uh, real politic 
has sort of pervades and is sort of um, seen as like the only way forward, especially you just look at American politics now. Uh, it's it's totally devolved into the pure invective. Um, so I'm almost worried that the the cultural milieu that Game of Thrones comes out of is uh, it, it was impossible would have been impossible for him for him not to reflect that in the storytelling. Uh, and I have more to say, but I want to hear your responses first. Yeah, I think that's good insight, and it and it gives me a couple of thoughts. I'm glad you raised the pornography issue because <laughs> one of the funniest things about the thread that I wrote was that. Uh, our good friend Varg commented on it and said something to the effect of like, I'm not reading this because I don't want to, I don't want to give evil pornographic goblins like George Martin any of my money. <laughs> something like I absurd saw that. like that. And I was happy that he said that because he's in a sense right about the pornographic elements. And I want to distinguish between what you're talking about and what I would consider pornographic. And I, I take a pretty broad view of what is pornographic, or at least I think you can take a pretty broad view. And I mean, I, the Supreme Court, one of the famous like lines from the Supreme Court when it was considering pornography was, I think Justice Potter Stewart said something to the effect that I know it when I see it. And I think that's true, right? I think it's hard to draw ultimately a line around what it is, and you have to rely on people of good moral standing to identify it and, and disallow it. Um, but like you said, I don't think that portraying nudity is necessarily pornographic. And I don't think that portraying violence is necessarily like pornographic in the sense of, in the broader sense of, um, you know, violating, it's de deriving pleasure from violating a taboo, let's say. Um, but I think that Game of Thrones still has this like layer of low grade pornograph pornography, pornographicism uh, to it that, that appeals to a lot of people. Uh, and it's like, you can see it in the kind of, um, I don't know, the sadistic delight that he gives to the descriptions of, you know, torture or of like scatological stuff or a weird, you know, rapey sex stuff um, without, with kind of like a perfectly neutral uh, authorial lens. Like, he he lingers on it and doesn't say anything about it. And that's kind of your license as the reader to engage in it without any censure or without any direction or understanding that this is, you know, not good. Uh, and so I think that's, I think that appeals. I mean, you know, and the show turned that up to 11 by just having like tits everywhere. Um, and then the other thing that you commented on that I thought was really interesting was kind of the way that, Lord of the Rings is nostalgic. And I think it is, I think it's, and I think you can even find some um, contradiction between Martin and Tolkien there because of the way that Lord of the Rings really looks, the effort of Lord of the Rings in some ways is to bring the, some of the principles, moral principles or values of the fading past to bear on the modern world as it's developing. And in opposition, Martin's effort in many ways is to project the values of the present back onto a past where those values didn't obtain. That is and, phenomenally well said, my friend. And that's one of those, you know, criticisms. I think that's behind one of the common criticisms you see, which is to say that like, dude, the Middle Ages were not this bad. Like they weren't this hopeless. They weren't this completely uh, deprived of meaning or joy or Well, um, people, people now like to deny 
they can't possibly understand the animating uh, uh, light of religion that uh, sort of animated everything that people in the Middle Ages did. It was a living, breathing, uh, uh, tactile experience for them every single day. And when we look back, we say, oh, they didn't have indoor plumbing and they didn't brush their teeth every day. And they think that they must have been wallowing in misery at all time, at all times. Um, and I, I don't think Game of Thrones, I don't think George R. R. Martin is capable of kind of understanding that. And that's why this comes across so starkly uh, nihilistic, as you said, as opposed to the game uh, Lord of the Rings, where the religious themes are there. He's such a deft writer that he doesn't beat you over the head with the religious themes at all but they are certainly there um and i think it it think it uh it, it elevates that work to the level of, like i said of myth or parable whereas uh lord of the rings is excuse me game of thrones is really more just a, a symptomatic um a symptomatic example of decline to, to use pretty strong words well, you won't get any uh, <laughs> you won't get any argument from me on that point. Well, so you what you said about um, projecting that uh, what did, what did you say projecting values today's values back onto the past? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is exactly what Frederick Jameson says is the is the plight of postmodern art. Exactly that. Have you read that book, Postmodernism? Yeah, well, I, you know, that's that's a flawed book in many big glaring ways, but it's also a, probably an indispensable book for understanding uh, the cultural production of the 80s and 90s and everything going forward. Um, I said in the introduction, this is us using art and culture to navigate the digital age. So the idea is that, that uh, Jameson presents is that uh, when you see a work about the past in the postmodern era, it's not a work of nostalgia. It's a work of uh, it's a work of anxiety about the present, uh, and it's attempting to project our values onto the past. Uh, it's also it's also a symptom of our ahistoricity. There's a break with tradition after the World Wars, and we are like not really connected to the the long Western tradition of religion, uh, art, culture, etc. And we're kind of set adrift here in the postmodern era. And um, so we can't kind of reiterating what I already said, we can't really embody the the experience, the tactile experience that people of the past had with the world that was animated by religion. And another thing uh, about the ahistoricity of the uh, of works of art in the postmodern era is that um, notice notice that if you compare and contrast, say, Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings and juxtaposed them to uh, Night of the Living Dead, the film series, and uh, the, um, the Walking Dead series, the, the comic book and the show. The guy who wrote The Walking Dead explicitly said, and George R. R. Martin is also explicit about this, they say, you know, okay, so we, we, watched the, um, we watched the Night of the Living Dead, the Return of the Living Dead, and the Day of the Dead, and it's like, well, what happens next? The whole world is taken over by zombies. Uh, well, what happens next? And George R. R. Martin has this, I didn't realize how ridiculous this comment was at first, but he says, uh, okay, the good guys win at the end of, of Lord of the Rings and Aragon is returned to his rightful place as the king, but what's his tax policy? And it's <laughs> like, well, first of all, no one gives a shit what his tax right. policy is. That being said, Martin does an excellent job de de depicting the council 
in King's Landing. I mean, it's very, it's really well written. It's, it's really good television. It's really good uh, writing. So I'm not criticizing him on that point, but I see this as us, like we have devolved into this like sort of dead materialistic nihilistic uh, way of being in which the stories we see are really more reflecting to us. It's like holding up a mirror to our own inadequacy. Whereas opposed to um, stuff like uh, the first, especially the first Night of the Living Dead and the Lord of the Rings, there is some hope for the future. Uh, there's also some some uh, social commentary in Night of the Living Dead that I think we should leave aside. Um, but at the end of it, there's a posse going around taking out all the zombies and they take out they take out the main protagonist uh, thinking he's a zombie. And of course, that that's something for a different time because he was a, uh, he was a black actor and people have read a lot into that. The director insists that that's irrelevant. Uh, but that's not what this discussion is about. The end of that uh, movie involves some kind of hope right that that humans band together in the face of this like civilization ending crisis and the law because one of the characters at the very end is the sheriff the law uh, is reasserting itself and and there's maybe maybe a spark of hope for the future um game of thrones especially in its uh, in its uh, unfinished form it's really just like <laughs> watching one good guy after the next getting taken out and getting taken out. And the craziest thing is, is that Danny, right, who's supposed to be the savior figure, it ultimately ends up corrupted. And I feel like that's sending a much different message than Frodo, who who never really gets corrupted. Um, he almost does. And, and he is uh, forever tarnished by this, and he has to go away with the elves at the end. Uh, do you agree with me that does Frodo come off unscathed? Uh, he doesn't come off unscathed, but does he come off uh, uncorrupted or has he been like totally kind of uh, uh, affected to the point where he's turned into uh, something less uh, honorable than he was in the beginning? Like what happens to Danny? You know, I, I do. I think that at the end of the book, if memory serves, um, there is some evidence that the ring finally does corrupt Frodo but I think that the I guess the reader's relation or at this point understanding of the inevitability of that shields Frodo from like some degree of like moral condemnation with regard to that corruption right like he it, it, because the ring has been set up as inevitable and more powerful, the closer it gets to the point of origin. And because his corruption comes at the last second when, you know, the choice is to either throw it in or keep it. And he briefly elects to keep it. And then, you know, salvation comes in the form of Gollum biting his finger off and falling in. I think that the reader is, I guess it's underscored that Frodo is like the best of us, right? Like you could not have done better than Frodo. Uh, nobody could have done better than Frodo, but ultimately the power of the ring is is greater than any mortal. And so I think that that's kind of what Tolkien sets up with the way that Frodo's, uh, you know, last act, or I guess that portion of the story concludes. So, uh, you know, I think it, I think that does a good job of preserving um, our hope or our faith in the like what good there does exist in mortals. And the ability of that good to um, 
you know, to, to do what it needs to do and provide the opportunity for the divine intervention, the you catastrophe that Tolkien is constantly writing about. Well, yes, but I, I have to add something though, because um, I think Frodo is, is uh, one of the greatest heroes of all time. And I think what he does, there's many, many more facets to Frodo than meet the eye that, that are they're, they're in there, but I think they're sometimes forgotten. I think they're overlooked for two reasons. I think Frodo is sometimes knocked down a peg in the mind of readers and viewers of the film because A, he does, uh, he does capitulate to the ring at the very last second. Um, and the only reason it gets off his finger is he puts it on his finger, but Gollum uh, bites it off, number one. And then number two, Sam comes in and saves him. And I think because of those two states of affair, people kind of think, well, Frodo failed and he had to get saved by Sam. But I actually think uh, that's a misreading of it because the first thing is that Frodo, despite Sam's protestations, Frodo refuses to kill Gollum. Mm -hmm. uh, and that turns out to be the most important decision he makes throughout the whole series, perhaps even more important than uh, when he leaves the fellowship, when Boromir tries to deceive him. Uh, now, some people say the message here is is one of mercy, and I I guess you could you could argue that, but I I, I see it as uh, Frodo. It's not it's not, I don't even like to use the word empathy, but Frodo sees uh, what he is at risk of becoming. Gollum is his shadow, so Gollum is the living, breathing example of what Frodo could be. And if Frodo wavers and if Frodo falters in the face of the power of the ring, uh, he will no longer be Frodo. He will turn into this wretch of a man, that uh, wretch of a hobbit that Gollum has become. And the other thing about Sam coming in to save uh, Frodo is that um, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't take anything away from Frodo because Frodo was the, was the ring bearer through the whole entire series. And Frodo was the only one who could have uh, carried that burden all the way to Mount Doom. And he puts the ring on and he, he fights with a barrel white and he fights with the, uh, the, uh, the nine riders, the Nazgul riders. Um, so he's quite a heroic figure. And when Sam carries him up the mountain, it's not because Frodo is weak. It's not because Frodo can't do it by himself. It's because Frodo has literally taken on uh, the burden of all the world's evil onto himself. And this is where the Christian themes sort of come in, in a way. Um, mm. he, he's sacrificed himself to, to absorb all the evil of the ring that if it got into anyone else's hand, it would have unleashed Pandora's box of Sauron uh, and his legions uh, who are trying to take over the world. Now, what I think, oh, and I, I also meant to say with, with Gollum, uh, it also shows a sort of uh, farsightedness that the only other person, the only other two people in the entire series that that kind of demonstrate this. Well, I guess there's three actually: Galadriel when she refuses the ring, uh, Aragorn when he sends Frodo off by himself at the end of the Fellowship, and uh, but mo most importantly of all is uh, Gandalf when he realizes um, it's important that the ring f went from three went through three hobbits. It went from Gollum to Bilbo to Frodo. And the fact that the ring has been uh, resurfaced for this long and hasn't unleashed upon the world 
tells him that that means it's important that it's hobbits and not elves and not men and not somebody else, not some other race that has the ring. So he shows this farsightedness in uh, leaving the ring with the hobbits. And he tells Frodo, uh, Bilbo had mercy on Gollum. And I think he even said what I said, that he saw some of himself in Gollum. Uh, but that doesn't take away from uh, the venerability of Frodo. He's still the hero in this tale. And it's still a challenge that other people prove that they failed at. Yeah, so that is that is my requiem for Frodo. No, I think it's great. And I think it's uh, I think your post on it was took off because it is correct. And it made a really compelling argument. And I think the trap that a lot of people fall into um, is this like, I guess, overly literal or overly materialistic analysis of, of uh, Frodo's journey, let's say, and the events of the story. Um, because, you know, and maybe this is a broader, a broader thread of our conversation that, that uh, people have, have forgotten in some sense how to kind of evaluate theme in a story and what theme means. But um, on the Frodo point, I think that, yeah, it's it's nothing to say that, oh, like Sam had to carry him up the mountain or like Frodo was not the best warrior in all of Middle Earth. It's, it's a, uh, like you said, in many ways, metaphorical or symbolic or uh, layered. The, the events of the story represent the interplay of these thematic developments, which is to say that, you know, this ring, this, this universal evil, uh, inevitable universal evil is weighing down on Frodo and he, the hero, the heroism of Frodo is to meet any challenge that comes uh, under that burden and with his purpose in mind, which is to get the ring to be destroyed in Mount Doom uh, and and not keep it for his own sake. Uh, so, yeah, I I totally think that it does not take anything away from Frodo's heroism that that inevitability crashes down on him at the end. Because, I mean, the broader purpose of of Tolkien and writing the entire story is to show that how hero how our heroism how our um, good moral choices. Uh, provide the opportunity and are necessary to the um, like the divine plan, right? The guy, the, the divine action in, in the material world. So like, but for Frodo's heroism, the ring is not destroyed, but for, um, and so, and that's why I think the theme here is actually broader than mercy. I think you're right about that. I think in this example, you know, there is a mercy element to it, but you can also look at, let's say, um, Denethor's failure and contrasted with Theoden's success yeah, in yeah. showing courage against desperate odds and resisting despair. So Theoden makes the correct moral choice in the face of inevitable doom in the face of despair, Denethor makes the opposite choice, the wrong choice. And we see how, um, how Theoden's correct moral choice enables the you catastrophe, the good catastrophe, um, the divine hand to, to provide this like surprising but inevitable salvation. Yeah, and um, when you say the divine hand, it's like, I don't want to be too, well, 
heavy-handed about the Christian themes in there because I think they're actually very subtle. But I tried to say that the reason why the hobbits are able to bear the weight of the ring as opposed to men is because hobbits are simple and they're uh, very uh, uh, sensual people, whereas men are ambitious and they have this drive within them. Uh, and just like Gollum is Frodo's shadow, the orcs are the men's shadow. Uh, now, we do have people like you said, uh, like we talked about Theoden, who are able to overcome this, even Boromir overcomes it uh so 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 token does want to offer some hope for us but i think at the end of the day what he's trying to tell us is is that to to be simple to 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 not be uh too ambitious is uh the better way to be because you're 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 not going to be caught up in the rat race of uh life and the rat race of industrial society because uh industrialization and technology is a promise to humanity and uh, it's a promise to make humanity's life easier. And but the, the more technology you get, the more technology you need to meet your needs. And uh, of course, this gets into the whole power corrupts and connects us to Danny, because the more technology you have, the more power you have and you can wield it in a negative way. So I think Tolkien is trying to tell us that we need to be simple like the, uh, the hobbits. And it's just like uh, Christ's message is uh, to have faith. Um, and that that you can use your reason like the Greeks did to come down uh, to, to conclusions about the way things are in the world. But that is a great and heavy burden. Right. That uh, it's, it's too much for us to bear. And, and Christ comes to tell us to to have faith and to value faith over reason. And I actually think that that theme is in there in Tolkien a little bit. It's not exactly. uh faith versus reason, so to speak. But uh, if you think about the technological element, um, that that literal mindedness uh, of sort of trying to manipulate the world for your own ambition. And when Frodo goes away with the elves at the end, it's because uh, he sort of leaves the Garden of Eden of the of the Shire and goes through his trial by fire, literally, uh, with the world. And he can't do so completely untarnished. And mm. uh, I think um danny it might be a good character to juxtapose against frodo because she starts out with uh the best of intention and she does good all throughout the series but is ultimately corrupted at the very end uh by power um she she finally is is at the point where she can finally seize the power that she's been trying to 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 get all this time for her rightful place as the queen of westeros the problem is, is as soon as she is on the threshold of gaining all that power, she immediately uses it for evil to um, to uh, to satiate her need for revenge. And uh, one of the reasons I say Game of Thrones is such a failure is because this is actually a good a good plot twist at the end. This is actually a pretty good device. And I think it could have been used well to to drive these points home. And I just think they fucked it up. I think the show running people screwed it up they flubbed it they tried to condense way too much the last season should have been two seasons uh you know if, if martin was writing this as a book it would have been a thousand page book and for them to force that into such a short uh season that had a whole lot of other stuff going on the um the battle at the wall between fi the final battle between the dead and the uh the last holdouts of humanity uh they tried to force those two huge uh plot resolutions into this short season 
Right. And one uh, had nothing, one had nothing to do with the other. (laughs) Absolutely. It was bizarre. Absolutely. But uh, please, I'm, uh, I'm taking up too much of my guest's time. So why don't you tell me what what you think about what I just did comparing Danny to Frodo as sort of the polar opposites of each other? I think it's, I think it is good. I think it makes sense. I think maybe a more direct comparison might be Aragorn to Danny, um, who is also on his own quest to attain power. And, and I think this will let me add a layer to your point about, um, about the, the, the moral virtue of simplicity represented by the hobbits. And I, I do think that's true, but I think that Tolkien's maybe wrinkle or nuance to that is that there, you know, it, it, it's not that everybody has to be has to lead the simple hobbit life because obviously I think if I think we would both agree the implication is that if Aragorn rejected his 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 kind of arc to become king of Gondor that would be a moral failure on his part Aragorn needed to be the king of Gondor and it was his rightful place to be the king of Gondor and he was the guy for the job and uh one of the big changes from the books to the movies is that he seemed uncertain about it in the movies and in the books he's just like he was more of kind of a like a secondary character in the books in some ways and he never had it. He was just like, I'm going to be the king of Gondor. I'm just waiting for the right opportunity. I'm setting it all up. And, and then he was a good king of Gondor, right? And so uh, there's no criticism from Tolkien on for the, the, the man who is the rightful king or the rightful, you know, Gandalf pulling strings at the top or the rightful Galadriel, who's a queen in her own right, to, to persist in that role and to have influence over world affairs and to know a lot of things um but i i think that my reading of it at least is like that there is there is greater danger to that right like you were saying um and so i'm sorry greater danger to which greater danger to uh to kind of you know achieving your rightful ambitions at the higher in the higher uh stations of life like there is a need for a good king, but that good king maybe f- f- like aspirants to that throne face a much greater danger or at, or at greater moral risk than um, somebody who's just in the hobbit position who, who has like this low station in life and embraces it. That person is in, is in relatively little danger compared to somebody who maybe rightfully aspires to the throne, aspires to a high station, uh, but that person is still in greater danger. And so I think that shows through with Danny, who, you know, maybe maybe as the last Targaryen or whatever is the rightful queen of Westeros. Um, but like you said, with better handling of the last season or putative two seasons of the show, that could have been played out really well to show the risk of uh, aspiring to that high station even if it is your right, even if it is something that you are born for or entitled to, taking it still presents risks to you. Well, this is perfect. This actually gets right at the nihilism that we're talking about.
so I think there's, uh, I think we're really, really getting at uh, some of the important stuff with these, with these pieces of work that are not maybe so, so obvious or not maybe so readily apparent uh, because um, we keep turning back to this word nihilism and at base, that word means that there is no inherent meaning to existence. There's no inherent meaning to the, the things that happen uh, in, in life or in the world, uh, that there's a materialistic world and that material circumstances drive history. And you can oppose that to the religious worldview, which is that uh, everything has meaning and everything is imbued by meaning by the creator. Uh, you don't have to be Christian for this. It's, it really applies to any and every religion. And uh, another part of the meaning in the world is that uh, not only are we God's creation and that uh, we are sort of uh, living out his will in the world, but there is also a, a great eternal struggle and battle going on between good and evil. And uh, that struggle plays itself out in our human endeavors. So when you think about it like that, uh, what you just said about Aragorn and Danny is actually a very important thing that I'd never thought of before right now. Uh, and that is the idea of destiny and the idea of fate and that, uh, the idea of God's will. So um, one of the ways the idea of the concept of fate manifests itself in mythology is goes back to exactly what we were saying about the Arthurian template of the, the castle Scullion, who's actually uh, a king. Uh, and he actually has royal blood. And he, uh, it's his destiny to ascend the throne uh, because he was born with it and it was innate to who he is as a human being. Uh, whereas, uh, so that's Aragorn in that, in that, in that story. And it's, it is very interesting actually that, that uh, this, this kind of helps my thesis that Tolkien makes Frodo the hero, uh, not Aragorn. Uh, Aragorn is the only character in that book, the only main character in that book who has any off-screen, uh, 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 important off-screen um, goings-on, except for maybe Gandalf a little bit. Gandalf goes away, does a bunch of research about the ring and comes back. But if you remember, he does that in the very beginning and then the action sets itself, sets itself off and we go through the epic journey. And then at the end, Aragorn actually disappears and goes and gets the, 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 the army of the dead and brings them back to, to fight and win and reclaim his throne. Um, and I think that's one of the ways in which Tolkien shows that uh, this is actually not as important anymore as it once was in the new, the new uh, crisis of modernity that we find ourselves in, that, that he's not the central figure of the character. He's actually a second, uh, central figure of the story. He's actually a secondary character um, and that sort of thing has been done before, right? But, but Frodo has to, to uh, overcome with his will. Uh, he has to overcome the, uh, the problems of, uh, of the story. Now juxtapose uh, the fate and the destiny of Aragorn with Danny, right? She basically fits all of that. Uh, she totally fits all of those themes that she's uh, born uh, the rightful ruler of uh, Westeros and uh, it is innate to her and it is her destiny, uh, but her human failings overcome that, right? And in this uh, materialistic and nihilistic world of Game of Thrones and this world of real politic, uh, her passions overwhelm uh, her destiny and she kind of, uh, she kind of uh, gives up her divine calling 
to to uh, stoop to using her power to to take revenge on those she feels has wronged her. Uh, that little tangent was totally inspired by what you said about Aragorn and uh, and his fate and his destiny, and I'm using it as a way to sort of to sort of bolster my my both of our arguments really that that Game of Thrones is nihilistic. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because you could read you could look at that comparison and read into it um, kind of that Tolkien offers you one perspective for how the normal man can make sense of uh, modernity in a moral sense and that martin offers you a, another couple of like kind of case samples with uh at least you know if we're gonna if we're gonna credit the canonicity of the end of the show john who essentially just gives up and danny who becomes corrupted and so there's there's no sense of like being able to impose or to impose your will on the world for good or to uh, provide for the action of the divine toward the good in either John or Danny's case. Very, very well said, my friend. And I, um, yeah, same, same theme with, uh, with uh, the lack of uh, the fulfilling your destiny where John uh, gives it up at the end. Um, I think it's the same, the same problem. And I think it's, you know, I had said there's like a, a, a mechanical failure, but there's also a thematic failure with Game of Thrones. And it's funny that I am saying this and taking your side because I'm a rabid fucking fan of Song of Ice and Fire. I'm a rabid fan of George R. R. Martin. I think the dude is a cool dude. I think uh, his project was a fun project. I think he's a very good writer, a little bit repetitive at times. Uh, but, you know, he he's like... Uh, He's kind of just like a, 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 a like a teenage boy with like <laughs> who like wants to set up this super epic uh, Warhammer or, uh, you know, uh, tabletop game where he he ends up. And it, this is an apt analogy because George R. R. Martin is actually a, 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 a figure game player. Mm. And it's like the guy, the kid who sets up this epic battle on his tabletop game never actually gets to the battle because he's so obsessed with like positioning his troops in the right places and right. painting them the right way. And then he wants to repaint them and he like never gets to the battle. I mean, I feel like that's what happened with the story. Yeah, it's, it, it is interesting. It's, I mean, I wrote the thread because I'm equally fascinated by it and i don't have you know i'm not like out here every day mad about game of thrones or hating on it or anything i post about i don't think i've even posted about posted about it since those threads that i made um but it is fascinating and i think it's like like you said he he just seems like a guy who wanted to do his thing and it was ambitious like he he knew what he was doing and that he was writing and like the tolkien in the Tolkien shadow or in response to Tolkien in some ways, but at the same time, there's no way that he was like, ah, I'm gonna write this book and I'm gonna become like a major, major cultural figure whose work is like, you know, relevant in, in the philosophical milieu of 2023, 22 or whatever. And so in, in that sense, I almost feel bad for him. Like I it would, you know, what I've, would I be overly concerned about finishing, you know, puzzling out the end of and finishing my book series that I know people are just going to jump down my throat over 
when I've got 60 million in the bank and lucrative TV deals. No, come on. I'm going to take the bag too. Of course. Yeah. That's what uh, happened. That is yeah, exactly what so, happened. So I'm not like, but I think that this is, this is kind of like an obtuse abstract point, but there are of course other factors for why he didn't finish the books. Like, of course, like he's old, it gets, you know, it's hard enough to write when you're young and have nothing else to do. Uh, so when you're old and have like major business interests and other stuff to do, then yeah, like, of course, it's going to take long to write your, to your, write your long ass complicated book and go through the whole editing process with your publisher and so forth. And um, so, so, but these are kind of like, these are kind of, I think those are like downstream factors in the sense that there's this hard puzzle and the hard puzzle is the conflict between the thematic thrust of the work and the structure of the work and then he's like looking at this hard puzzle and he's like ah, I guess I already have so much money I'm old like I want to go eat nice dinners and then it doesn't get written I think that's the answer because I mean yeah, he's sure, spoiled he's fat and happy yeah and I think there's you know maybe maybe like a great writer could puzzle it out and and keep the themes and, and strike some kind of satisfactory balance at the end or maybe you know, maybe he would kind of like take what I would consider to be the easy and satisfying way out, which is to um, just turn it into like a heroic ending where, you know, John takes the throne or John and Danny get married and take the throne or they fight for the throne and, you know, Danny becomes corrupted and John wins and unites Westeros to face the threat of the White Walkers or, you know, however you want to do it. I think there's there's ways to do it that compromise a little bit on his, on his like dark thematic purpose, uh, but that you, that you would get away with, but you know, why bother? Yeah. Well, you know, um, just to kind of bookend my, my discussion on nihilism and in, in, in these films, um, like with the, with the, uh, with the, uh, I keep with it, the walking dead. Sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, the Walking Dead series, it's it's just like life has been reduced to this hard scrabble, uh, meaningless existence with no real hope for the future. And any hope for the future just keeps getting dashed over and over and over again. And they keep going to first they go to the prison and then they in the in the manga series anyway, they are excuse me, the comic, the graphic novel series, they go to the suburbs and uh, then they go to the terminus. And, and then they get captured and it's like they go through all these different social experiments or all these different milieus of like uh, of postmodern culture. And they there's a, they're, all of them are a dead end and all of them are empty and they have to flee over and over and over again. They come to the governor's compound where it's supposed to be like a utopia, just like the terminal. Um, and they have to flee from that over and over and over again. And it's like there's no recourse to uh, human flourishing anymore. And I, I don't think that that's true because we live in like one of the most prosperous and materially comfortable uh, realms, or excuse me, eras of all time. I think this more reflects uh, a dearth uh, of, of spiritual fulfillment and the moral paucity uh, existent in the, the world given to us uh, that presenting itself to us in this time frame, because the hope for the future is continually dashed. So if the fulfillment of the destiny never comes comes through at the end, like it does with Lord of the Rings, um, it's almost like uh, commenting that uh, there's like it's like almost like a hopeless thing. Uh, so John giving it up 
and passing on the crown, I think they tried to pass it off as some sort of, uh, you know, like, like, like higher moral decision that he's making. But really what I think it is, is getting at this uh, inability to uh, this lack of belief in destiny uh, and predestination. And it's sort of uh, giving it short shrift. But um, if I don't know if we've alienated all of the, uh, the fantasy sci-fi nerds. Um, I, I, I don't know if maybe it makes sense to keep this part of the discussion to the end. But um, I would like to just sort of nerd out a little bit on this stuff as, as a way to take us to the end because we've been a little hard on this these series and we've been a little hard on George R. R. Martin. So why don't we, uh, why don't we take, us, uh, take ourselves out here uh, on, a, on a high note? Um, now, all, everything we just discussed, put that aside for a minute. Did you enjoy the experience of reading the books for the first time? Um, yeah, I read them, I think, young enough that I had not yet been exposed to other authors doing the same thing or mm. doing variations on the same thing. So uh, it definitely was thrilling and revelatory in some ways. I really liked the first book, of course. And um, obviously, like everybody else, the, uh, the Ned Stark ending of the first book caught me pretty unawares it was it was uh, adverse to what i at that point expected from from story structure in my in you know the muddled the muddled experiential understanding i had of it at the time um and, and it wasn't until maybe the end of the second or the third book that i started to feel like uh you know this is this seems like now we're kind of rehashing some of the same old tricks and it doesn't seem to be building toward anything satisfying. Um, and I think I, I think I read up to the point of publishing on my first read through of the series, which I think at the time there were four books out. I think I read through the fourth book uh, and then did not have not come back to the fifth book because the show series had started and I enjoyed the first couple seasons of the show and then felt like the show was going off the rails faster than the books. So bailed out of that too. And kind of followed the, <laughs> followed like everybody did the controversy of, of the last couple of seasons getting, you know, getting shitty for other reasons, not, not purely George Martin reasons, but just bad showrunner reasons. Um, but yeah, I, I, like I said uh, at the beginning of this, I think there's, I think he's a good writer. I think he's good at a lot of stuff. I think he's got some fun concepts. He's really good at sketching out a character and developing a character in compelling ways. Um, and he has a good sense of kind of the small scale skills of storytelling, um, how to pace conflict in a scene, how to build conflict in a scene up to a turn of a scene, um, how, to, how to imply a rising conflict between two characters based on, you know, clearly stating their intentions or their character traits, stuff like that. Like the, the small scale nuts and bolts of storytelling. I think he has a, a ton of, of well internalized and deft skill with, so I can say a lot of good things about him. Yeah. He I got, just, he got off lost in the weeds. Yeah. And I think the cause of, of getting lost in the weeds is this like inherent conflict at the core of the story that I keep talking about. And that was really, like I said, the, that was the one point that I, the one argument that I wanted to make about the thread. And obviously, uh, I mean, you, you said it yourself, a Twitter thread is not the be all and end all of a subject, but um, people projected or read a lot into what I said that I wasn't trying to say, or that I, you know, I, 
this, the fallout from that thread was crazy. That's like definitely the most controversial thread I've ever done. Like I did that, I did a thread on Robin Hood that got bigger ultimately than the uh, Game of Thrones thread. And all the replies on that were like super sane and really polite and helpful and added a lot to my concept. Um, and so the experience of that was like totally different than the Game of Thrones thread. I don't know, something weird about the Game of Thrones uh, super fans. Yeah, man. Do, do, do a thread on Marvel, criticizing Marvel and watch what happens. It's, oh, it's the, same thing. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's the same thing, bro. I was jealous of you when you made that thread because of the controversy, because I will tweet provocative stuff sometime in an attempt to get like a feeding frenzy of like people who are mad about it to like mm -hmm. retweet it and quote tweet it and be super controversial. So when you did that, I'm like, oh, man. He pulled that off so perfectly well. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I want to do. Um, yeah. So uh, what? Uh, so when you read the books, it sounds like A Feast for Crows was the last one that had come out, or did you read them before A Feast for Crows came out? What's the last one that's out now? Well, now Dance it's, of Dragons. Yeah, which came out in 2011, which is 11 years ago. It's yeah. insane. So I think I read. I think I. I think Feast for Crows came out as I was reading through the first. Three. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I. Uh, so you found them a long time ago, man. You must have been young. Yeah, dude. I was like, back in the day, I was, uh, after school, I would like walk to the Barnes and Noble that was pretty close to my school and, you know, drop seven bucks on a book and read it on my walk back. That's awesome. So I was going through a lot of stuff like that at the time and just grabbed it on a whim and well, I it stuck around. I too read them around the same time as you, because I saw the cover, the original cover of, uh, of, uh, Game of Thrones and I was immediately taken by it. And then I read the, read the beginning and I'm like, what the fuck is this? And I, dude, this was like 2003 when I read it. Mm -hmm. So uh, only Storm of, Swords, Storm of Swords was the last one that had come out. And to read it back then, man, was so crazy because it sounds like you had the same experience because no one had heard of it. No one was talking about it. And uh, it just blew me away. And these books actually really palpably changed my life uh, in, in some major, major ways. Um, I'm currently looking at my bookshelf upon which I see a book called Medieval Civilization from 400 to 1500. And it's because uh, I read, so I must've been 24 at the time when I read those three books. And at that point in my life, I had only ever read fiction and maybe some literary criticism. And I was so animated and hyped up by those books that nothing was fulfilling to me anymore. And I went off and read all kinds of books about the Roman empire and about medieval civilization. And like probably spent a five year spurg solely reading history because like game of Thrones, like put it in my head and, and got me like, I, I wanted to live in the game of Thrones world, like so bad. I just thought it was the best thing. And like, I'm like madly in love to this day with your grit. And uh, I think uh, Danny is one of the greatest characters of all time. Even after I said all the things that I said, Tyrion is one of the other greatest characters of all time. Um, and I didn't have anyone to talk to the books to about the books. So I took to the internet and I'm not one of these terminally online guys. Um, in, in the two thousands, I was barely ever online, dude. And I'll, I'm only going to embellish this because of who, of who my interlocutor is. And you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, in the early days of when I started going online in the 2000s, I was doing one of three things. I was watching skateboard videos on YouTube, right? But the other two things I was doing is I was reading Varg's blog while he was blogging from prison <laughs> in like 2005, dude. Um, and, and that's that's relevant because if anybody knows who Varg is, he's a huge Lord of the Rings. He's obsessed with Lord of the Rings, actually. 
And uh, the other thing I was doing, though, was going on the Game of Thrones message board, which was such early days of the Internet. I mean, the Internet hadn't even been around for 10 years when I found the message board. Uh, it's by this married couple who raise horses, and I forget their names right now, but they started this message board, and George R. R. Martin became friends with them, and they were the editors of that, uh, that Song of Ice and Fire book that came out, the hardcover that was like a genealogy of Westeros. It was like a, mm -hmm. an atlas of Westeros. Remember that book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, these two people uh, edited that book, and I forget their names now, but they ran this, this website back then. And it was like so easy to access George R. R. Martin back then. He would be on it. They would talk to him, and they, they would relay messages that he gave, and he would, um, he would set up like hangouts with his fans when he was, uh, when he was traveling and shit. And uh, the internet was so young back then. It was like fucking looking at uh, like one of those old Apple computers. It was just like a black background with like purple or green words. And there's nothing else on the screen because like digital technology hadn't really like broken out of the gate yet. Uh, so, so I was definitely a Game of Thrones obsessive. And then when the, by the time the movies came out, excuse me, the show came out, I had already been on board for years at that point. And I, I, I went, you know, completely ballistic, watching all the shows, drinking the beer, talking to people on, you know, message boards on Facebook. It was a, it was a really big deal to me. And then slowly but surely over time, it just started to to just eat away at me because I would I had this like constant heightened sense of expectation for the next book and right. it never came out. And, and it, but it's even worse than that, though, because for some uh Dance of Dragons does have some strengths to it for sure. But really, by the time you read, when I read Feast for Crows, I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, what is this guy doing? And then after Dance with Dragons, it's like, dude, this guy is like way off into the weeds. And I don't know if he's going to be able to bring this back together. And clearly, uh, he never did bring it back together. And um, to get back to what I was talking about, about, you know, postmodernism versus modernism, probably alienating half my audience with this, but. Uh, the, the digital medium uh, of television, uh, because everything was digitized, I think, what was it, 2007 or something, uh, the digital medium has now completely uh, uh, obfuscated uh, the literary medium. And, 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 and Kindle tried to do it. They tried to, to put everything uh, into the digital format with Kindle, and that was kind of a flop. But they absolutely succeeded with uh, giving literature a second shrift and um, there's that book, Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, where he says that uh, literary society is dying and he blames cable television. Well, I think uh, he's it has come to pass. And one of the greatest examples you can say that um, television has finally sort of unseated literature as like the civilizational uh, uh, medium for representing itself and communicating with itself and telling itself about itself um, it has certainly shifted from television and the way that the the show, excuse me, shifted to television, the way the show sort of uh, phagocytized the books is uh, the greatest metaphor I can think of for this. And phagocytosis, just so everyone knows, is an immune cell uh, way of exterminating a, a, an invasive uh, pathogen or, or a mutated, potentially cancerous uh, normal cell that's kind of going haywire. It will bump itself up against the aberrant cell and sort of uh, like a blob kind of like mold itself around it and absorb it into itself and break it down into its constituent parts and uh, use the, the stuff that's necessary for itself to metabolize and then excrete the waste products. And I really, truly believe that um, that's exactly what the digital medium has done to literature. 
and we are left with instead of these like intact uh, kind of shining reified pieces of work like Don Quixote, which I mentioned in Lord of the Rings, which can be like a manual or a guidebook to try to help us uh, navigate our way through a dead materialistic uh, nihilistic world uh, and kind of show our way to the future. We instead have Lord of the Rings and uh, The Walking Dead, where as entertaining as they are, and as much as I enjoy, but I've seen The Walking Dead and I, you know, I, consume, I consume all of this stuff. I'm a fan of all these things. It's sort of a good, uh, a good thermometer for uh, the crisis of modernity that we face. And, um, you know, the, 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 maybe, maybe we should end on this note, Conan, if you're okay with it. Uh, the religious under and overtones of this discussion have kind of bubbled to the surface a couple of times. And you've mentioned my thread a couple of times that I did on Frodo. Um, and I explicitly used it to, uh, to sort of uh, highlight the Christian theme in uh, the Christian themes in uh, Lord of the Rings. But I also worry that if you talk about religious and Christian themes, you're, you're sort of going to be laughed at or kind of looked at as passe by the mainstream culture. But the thing of it is, is I don't even consider myself a Christian, uh, though I was raised that way. And I have positive uh, feelings about Christianity. Nevertheless, um, if nothing else, the moral lessons in there and, and the, 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 the teachings on the way of being are something that I wish could be preserved for our society. And um, I, think, I think it's the duty of literature and mythology to sort of uh, give us a guidebook or a roadmap on how we should act in the world. And I worry that, that um, Game of Thrones, the realism of Game of Thrones and the realism of uh, of the walking dead is like a, a pretty bad sign to show us that our, our, our society has lost its way. And just the simple meandering fact of the plot and the meandering of the, of the protagonists in those stories, uh, which I already kind of touched on with, with, with the walking dead is, is a bad sign. Like um, the hero's journey. One of the things Joseph Campbell says in the hero's journey is that like the hero is the one who overcomes the labyrinth. He, he finds the thread uh, through the labyrinth and overcomes at the end and emerges a new man. But he says that you can get lost and you can get trapped in the labyrinth or you can, you can be uh, uh, beaten by the minotaur. And I worry that like the, the, the super bloated, overdrawn, uh, over, excuse me, overblown plots uh, with all the different character threads is exactly that. It is the dissolution of the hero's journey. So um, I'm going to give you the last word, Conan, but uh, I, this is an extremely fruitful discussion. I think it probably probably good note to end on. And I want to remind anyone who's stuck with us to this point, Conan will absolutely be coming back as many times as he wants. Uh, we have a lot. We haven't even talked about Conan or Robert E. Howard at all today. And we're going to have to do that for next time. I'm very happy, though, to give you the last word. Um, anything you want to say, any parting thoughts, uh, please. The floor is now yours until we're done. Awesome. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts. Um, first, I want to address your point about phagocytosis. I think that's really salient and really apt. Um, and you can see it. You can see that the both the kind of like comic book sphere and the sort of like genre fiction sphere, like fantasy or sci-fi or even some of like the mystery genres, have really become more of a minor leagues for television and film. And a lot of the authors involved in them are writing their books with an eye toward being optioned uh, and toward writing something that will be good as a long running, like a TV miniseries. And um, 
one of the, one of the best examples of that is like the new George Martin, this dude named Patrick Rothfuss, who wrote the name of the wind, who, um, is also, dude. I was going to bring him up. Man. Yeah. <laughs> everybody's, him up. everybody's been waiting 10 years for his, the last book in his, uh, supposed trilogy that he said was written already done in 2007. And, uh, but in the meantime, He's optioning the rights for like board games and, and a movie and a TV show with Lin-Manuel Miranda and all this bullshit. None of it comes to fruition, but you can see that like he doesn't, his heart, he's not a professional. His, he doesn't care that much about, um, he's not like motivated to just bang out his, his series. He doesn't see himself ultimately as a, an author working in a remunerative space that has its own value. He's, he um, is constantly looking at optioning it out to other mediums. And I, I, I think that's part of, I don't know, it's all, it's all tied together, right? Like there's no single explanation. It's all layered interlinked explanations for why you get these um, long meandering pointless plots that you're describing, which remind me of um, the Macbeth line where he says, he says, it's told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And uh, that's, that's just like the impulse or the, I don't know, the frustration I have with a lot of, a lot of these um, just endlessly ongoing, needlessly, needlessly complicated or obtuse plots from which you can't derive any kind of meaningful statement about ourselves, about what it means to live in society in a good way, uh, or, you know, what the whole thing means at all. Like it's, it's literally just there for novelty to, to, to provide these jump scares or to provide these like crazy twists that really only hit the first time because you've been led to expect something else through a, tr like a, a, a trite trick rather than a, a reversal that's tied into a broader meaning developed by the story. Um, so that's, that's kind of coming, bringing it back to the crux of my criticism. And I guess that's really the last thing I have to say for the purposes of this conversation, but I do want to thank you for inviting me on. I really appreciate it so much. I'm glad we were finally able to connect. Like I said, I'd be overjoyed to come back on and talk about Conan, talk about writing theory, talk about whatever you want. Amazing, man. I hope uh, it's very clear to everyone now uh, why you're one of my favorite uh, posters. Although you have a pretty sizable audience, my friend. You are, uh, I think you're really gaining some traction. It's just, it's just so mind-blowing to me uh, how Twitter, the way people come out and use Twitter uh, in such creative ways. And we are now getting literary criticism uh, from my friend Conan, and I'm trying to go in the same vein as him. Uh, I remember you, man, from before you had a thousand followers. That's uh, right. And I, yeah, and I've watched you blow up, and this is just so cool. You can't get this anywhere else. I mean, you can't get this anywhere else. So, and and it's spilling over now into this podcast. I wanted to have a podcast. I'm repeating myself to talk to people like you and Raw Egg Nationalist and Zero HP Lovecraft because those these threads prove that you guys are. Uh, you got your, um, yeah. <laughs> You know your stuff. So, look, we're going to come back. We're going to do this again. I'm going to sign off. Uh, Conan, thank you so much. And uh, until next time, we will uh, we'll see each other on Twitter. Sounds good, my friend. All right. Bye-bye.